sitting today in Bloomington, Indiana, at the home of Father Peter and Korea Marilyn Gilquist. And perhaps some of you have been aware of an announcement made not too long ago about his retirement as the chairman of the Department of Missions and Evangelism for the Antiochian Archdiocese. And uh, we felt that this was such a significant event and the passing of such a significant era that we wanted to come down here and chat with Father Peter and even some of his family about uh, what this means and maybe even reminisce a little bit about the past. So uh, today we're privileged to have Father Peter, Korea, Maryland, and son, Father Peter John Gilquist. Father Peter John is a priest at All Saints Antiochian Orthodox Church right here in Bloomington, Indiana. Indiana. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what has taken place over these many years of service and ministry to the church. Father Peter, thanks for welcoming us into your home. What led to your decision to retire at this time? Uh, my age. <laughs> I'd hoped to make it to 75. And um, after having turned 73 last July, I realized physically I just couldn't run at the pace that I had over the years. Things like getting on planes, uh, hauling luggage through hotel lobbies. Uh, I, somebody younger needs to step in and do this stuff. And I, I said to Sidna Philip, to, to be honest, you've not gotten your money's worth in the last year. Um, because I, I feel physically I'm slowing down to the extent that it, it's interfering with the, my productivity. Well, some people may not realize the work that is involved in chairing uh, a department like this, uh, because as missions and uh, church groups and individuals learn about orthodoxy and they want to know what the next steps would be, that's where you come in, right? That's right. I've often said the, the first word in the Great Commission is go. Mm. You cannot do missions and evangelism sitting at a big oak desk. You've got to be out there, which involves extensive travel. It also involves being a fairly quick first responder, that when I get a call, for example, from a pastor who says, I believe I and my wife want to be Orthodox, we've got a number of the people in our current church that are very interested, would you come see us? And uh, it's the old story, you know, you strike while the iron is hot. And to put these guys on a six-month waiting list just doesn't work. Um, they want to know that I mean business every bit as much as they mean business. So there have been many days I've uh, gotten a call and started packing that afternoon and get on the plane maybe the next day and follow up on a situation that looks promising. And for most of those years, you did that from Santa Barbara, right? Right. Mm -hmm. When did you move here to Bloomington? We moved about two and a half years ago, which would be June of '09. It was an interesting thing. It was, it was great and holy Monday the year before that I was in the services in our parish there in St. Athanasius, Santa Barbara. And sometime during that service, uh, I felt the Lord speak to me. The context of it was that for years, we've wanted a full-time mission staff person in the Midwest. And uh, Father John Finley and I both lived in the Santa Barbara area. Uh, our third staff member, Father Michael Kaiser, lived in Florida. And there was nobody in between. And basically what I sensed that night was the Lord saying, I want you to go and do the Midwest work. And so on the way home, I said to Marilyn, uh, fasten your seatbelt. Hmm. And uh, she's always been incredibly willing. In fact, she made a mistake of... Uh, 
putting that verse from the book of Ruth in, in my wedding ring, the, the uh, reference for it. Whithersoever thou goest, I will go. Whithersoever thou lodgest, I will lodge. Uh, thy people will be my people, and thy God my God. And she, uh, she's been tested on that a number of times. <laughs> We're going to ask her about that, actually, in a few minutes. Marriage. And then I, I called my, the one I, I confessed to, my spiritual father, Father John Braun, and said, what do you think? He said, I, I like it. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I think I talked next to Father Richard Ballou, and he said, very interesting, congratulations. Mm-hmm. And um, then I wrote Metropolitan Philip and got a yes. So that's how it happened. We're sitting next to uh, Father Peter John Gilquist, your son, and I uh, just have to ask him at this point, what has it been like having your father now in your parish and serving with you? Well, it's been wonderful. I mean, we didn't expect it. Uh, we just assumed that they were going to stay in Santa Barbara, and um, we knew when, when we got out of seminary that wherever it was that we went, if it wasn't California, we weren't going to be living near family. And so... Um, you know, we, we definitely felt called to Bloomington, and so we came, and it's hard. You know, my wife's, Christina's family is on the East Coast. My family was on the West Coast, and we were right in between. So when we got the uh, call that they were considering moving out here to say that we were surprised uh, would be an understatement, but it's been wonderful having them here. We love having them. They're literally a mile uh, away, and uh, so anytime... The kids want to come over they can come over they, and uh that's it's a great joy we get to have dinner together and all those things that we just didn't think that we were going to be able to do uh, well father uh most people know the story of the uh, large group of evangelicals who came to orthodoxy as the result of a rather long journey of searching for the new testament church so we're not going to uh, rehash that story we would encourage anyone who is interested in that story to pick up the book becoming orthodox published by Conciliar Press, and you'll read one of the most fascinating journeys you'll ever want to read, particularly those of you who are exploring orthodoxy and want to know what were the questions and what were the answers as this group of Christians made that very uh, significant journey and really was the door that was opened to the rest of us who came later uh, asking those same questions and uh, found our way to uh, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So we're not going to talk a lot about that journey, but there are some things that our listeners would not know about you and about Marilyn, some of your family past and the history, and particularly your relationship with uh, Marilyn. And I'm going to turn the microphone over to Korea Marilyn at this point and ask about uh, her remembrances of first meeting you. How old were you and where were you at the time, Marilyn? Well, it was in Minneapolis where I'd grown up and I had a good friend in school and uh, at the end of our eighth grade year, she had a get-together at her house and uh, invited a neighbor friend named Pete Gilquist and uh, so we had a little party at her house and I remember when I first met him, I thought, oh, he's so tall. He was 6'4 and uh, very skinny, but I just remember the fact that I loved the fact that he was so tall. So we hit it off, became boyfriend and girlfriend before too long, and so that was the beginning of a long relationship that started at the end of my eighth grade year. 
I always say, you were just going in the ninth grade. That sounds so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I was going into ninth grade. <laughs> uh, some would say robbing the cradle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Father Peter, uh, I remember you telling some of the stories of, of meeting her, and uh, uh, you had kind of a sly way of meeting women, as I recall, in high school. Uh, something about arranged parties? <laughs> <laughs> well, she was referred to her friend Carolyn. Carolyn lived a half a block down the street from me. And we were, quote, neighborhood friends. She was two years younger, which, you know, in the junior high, high school years is quite a gap, especially the junior high years. And But I noticed she ran around with a really good-looking bunch of friends. So um, one day I said to her, I've got an idea, and that is, uh, you know, you're probably looking to meet somebody. I'm looking to meet somebody. Uh, what if we had a party this summer, every Friday night at your house? I'll bring the records. Uh, you furnish the Coke and the chips and dip, and I'll line you up with a friend of mine. You line me up with a friend of yours, and we'll just keep doing this till we meet somebody we like. So uh, I really double-crossed her. <clears throat> every Friday night, I lined her up with the kid across the street that she'd known all her life, named Bruce. And uh, she, on the other hand, uh, the first week lined me up with her cousin from Duluth who was in town, a lovely girl, absolutely no chemistry. And I honestly don't remember who girl number two was, but uh, her dad had gotten one of the first television sets in our neighborhood. It was one of those big old round screen things with a lot of snow on the black and white screen. And so Bruce and I went over about a half hour early just to watch TV, which was a huge treat back then. And the doorbell rang, and in walked this gorgeous, green-eyed, blonde-haired sweetheart with a ponytail. And I looked up, and I said to myself, that's the girl. <laughs> and it was. And was that the boy, Marilyn? I didn't know that at that point. <laughs> I did have a ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you're going to vouch for at this point. <laughs> well, I wish we could go into all of the details of your dating and then the, the marriage. Uh, such a beautiful story. But... You know, at some point, as a young Christian woman yourself, uh, Marilyn, you started learning about uh, the interest your husband and another rather large group of friends were having in finding the original New Testament church. I don't know that I've ever heard you talk about uh, your process of, of that search. And uh, how, I mean, were you right along with him that entire time with the same interest or a little ahead, a little behind? What do you remember about that? Uh, I would say that my spirit was always eager to be learning more. And as we were on this journey, it became apparent that it was a journey. We were, we were looking for the church, and we went through many stages, part of it being small group meeting in our living room. Uh, we called it a house church. And then when the men would get together and, and study, they would come back and uh, share with their wives and families what they'd been learning in this study, trying to pursue the New Testament church. So I would say that I was following along. And uh, it wasn't like it happened over a night. This took a long period of time. It was many years. But as the men would learn things and be excited about them, they'd come back and share them with their family and with the group that was meeting in their home. And so it was like it was a journey that we all took together. And uh, 
it had an incredible ending. As we know, it's not really ended. We're still uh, continuing. But anyway, it was a very positive experience. But did you ever have that feeling that uh, what in the world are we doing? Will, will Definitely. We ever get there? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a very strong feeling, wondering what are we doing and where are we going? And I'll never forget the first morning that we were going to church. This is when we were living in Grand Junction, Tennessee. And he came into the room with a, a clerical collar on. And I said, are you going to be wearing that from now on? <laughs> it was kind of shocking. And he said, well, I think so, but it's, it's okay. And that was one of the <laughs> surprises along the way, because he had gone from, uh, at, at one point in Grand Junction, he was referred to as, uh, the red-haired hippie preacher, and he wore overalls. So to move from being the red-haired hippie preacher to the man in a clerical collar was quite a switch. <laughs> I can just, I can just imagine. Well, Marilyn, not only did you make that journey, but uh, you had six children that you were trying to help understand uh, the process of looking for the New Testament church at various ages. And uh, I'm sure sometimes uh, they would wonder, well, you know, what are we calling church this week, and what, what is our worship experience going to be like? And so I thought maybe Father Peter John sitting next to me could help us uh, remember, help, uh, help all of us learn about uh, the, the journey uh, from the standpoint of the children growing up. Uh, wh what do you remember about those years, Father? I remember a lot about those years. I, I loved growing up in the midst of the, the movement, the journey. Um, I remember when we moved to California, uh, our first, the church that we met in out there was an old bank. And... Um, Shortly after we went in there, the woman who eventually became our iconographer, Jan Isham, uh, had painted this giant mural of a lion and a lamb, the size of the side of the bank. I mean, it was huge. Wow. And so, you know, immediately it was, it was like we had this introduction to iconography, which, which was uh, pretty amazing, and the children loved it, you know. And so, again, as we went on in the journey, the icons moved from outside the building into the building. But that was how the entire journey went. We started with one thing, and then we watched the movement. You know, we watched uh, the vestments go from being the simple white robes with the hoods, um, you know, over the back, to becoming more and more Eastern. Mm. Even though I remember when we were told that we were going to start taking communion together instead of breaking out into house churches, we were going to take communion together in the bank, in the, the church building. And just watching, they were asking for volunteers to come up and show, this is how we're going to cross our arms and come forward. And, you know, you could just kind of look around the room and see people scratching their heads. And um, just this whole transformation, you know, of this group with trumpets and guitars, you know. You know, we used to sing these Protestant songs that just sounded great when you had trumpets and guitars. But then moving into an, an a cappella form of worship and a more traditional form of worship and then eventually a more Eastern form of worship, it was just a, it was an amazing journey. I'm honored to have had the opportunity to have grown up in the middle of it because it gives me a vantage point to be able to explain to some people along the journey. Did, did you ever feel unsettled or uncomfortable or ambivalent? Or no. were you able to lock in? No. I felt confident that as we went along that everything that you found made sense. Uh, everything that as you and the other bishops at the time 
uh, were discovering, it made sense. So you, you could point to Ignatius of Antioch, and I remember as a child, you know, hearing, this is what Ignatius of Antioch wrote, and I thought, well, boy, he was not long after Jesus. <laughs> and then the rest of the church embraced that, and it's been passed down for 2,000 years. Well, that just makes sense to me, you know. So as a kid, we heard those things. Um, and so I always felt very stable, and I felt very excited every time something new happened in the church. Um, I felt very excited because it was like we were archaeologists, you know. We were uncovering this amazing truth, you know. And every time you see something new, you say, did you know that was there, you know. So, yeah, it was a joy a childhood. You were and are a musician yourself. Uh, were you old enough to uh, play in some of the worship services uh, as a musician, or was that before you were able to do that? I was asked to, but I'm kind of an original musician. I, I don't do, I mean, I, could, I suppose I could, but I never really got excited about sitting down with a group of musicians and leading yeah. worship in the church. We did have youth group meetings on Wednesday nights, and I'd bring my guitar to that and, and play a few... Uh, songs there, but yeah. but never in the church setting, no. I played for the Easter feast a few times, okay. and um, people were kind enough to listen. Well, as a musician, did you ever feel a sense of loss as you moved into a more liturgical, prescribed form of worship, and now any opportunity for creativity is pretty much out the door? Not at all, no. I was never, I mean, I, I appreciated coming together and you know, worshiping God, whether we had guitars or trumpets or whatever we had, right? But I was never particularly a fan of that style of music. I didn't dislike it. It just, I would never go home from the liturgy and turn on praise music like that. It just wasn't my preference. So, you know, for me, I grew up on um, John Michael Talbot's Lord's Supper album, mm. and which was phenomenal. And, you know, what was that? That was acoustic guitar and a choir and um, mostly choir. And so that was a lot more my style. And um, no, I appreciate the Byzantine music, the Russian style music. I love the Znamini chant in the church. And there's just so many different forms of music in orthodoxy itself that uh, you, know, you don't get tired of them. Do you remember, uh, Father Peter John, when you really first felt a calling to the priesthood or to life uh, in the clergy? Well, you know, the only thing I can do to kind of pinpoint is this. I had um, a friend, uh, Vern Gish, who was one of the ones who taught me to play the guitar when I was little. And he was, I don't know, 10 or 15 years older. And uh, I remember walking down Passado Road in Santa Barbara, not far from our house. And uh, one day, you know, he was asking me, he said, what do you want to do for a living? And I said, well, I said, I either want to be an engineer or a carpenter. And he said, oh, well, why? I said, well, if I'm an engineer, I can invent things. And, of course, carpenters can build things. He said, oh. And he said, uh, well, wouldn't you ever think of, you know, being a priest like your dad? And, and I just remember, like I said, at the age of nine, I think my response was something like, well, of course, why couldn't I do both? And so apparently very early on, it was just assumed that, you know, that was, that was where I was headed. And I never remember saying, yes, this is what I want to do. I just felt like it was, you know, it was what I was called to. So there was no great movement, no lightning, no clouds, no nothing, just simply, yes. What was Father Peter like as a father growing up in his home? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, good question. Let's see. Father Peter is and was a good role model. And I appreciated, I think, probably more than anything, the hunger for truth. And you know, that's contagious. And I appreciate the 
the sense of order, right and wrong. There's black and white. This is the way it is, and this is the way it isn't, and you're going to do the way it is or else. And again, that is an incredible gift because it, growing up in a relativistic society, uh, you need somebody to say, this is what we're doing and this is what we're not doing. So it was good. You know, he uh, unfortunately had to travel, but I, I knew why he was traveling, right? And I knew that the reason he was traveling was important. It was at least as important as being home as a dad. And the great thing is when he was home, he didn't have to go to the office 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week. He was just, his office was in the house. So when he was in town, when he was not traveling, he was home. I came home from school. I knew he'd be there. Mm. It was wonderful. And Father Peter, how, as you look back on all the travel that you did, but also you you raised a wonderful family. Uh, They are now all faithful to the church and to the Lord. How did you pull that off? What were the keys to that? Well, enter God's mercy. You know, so much of my life, and I think Marilyn would say the same thing, we'd launch out into something, and like Abraham of old, not know where we were going, knowing where we were called, not knowing how we'd get there. You know, the first time I ever laid eyes on my first daughter, Wendy, I just thought, man, I'm in this for the long haul, and I don't know how to be a dad yet. A lot of it was, you know, what if I were the kid, what would I want my dad to do? Almost like a golden rule thing. And so with, for example, the travel, which I'd done previously to uh, being a priest in the church, I was a senior book editor at Thomas Nelson Publishers. And that was travel because you can't find authors sitting behind a desk. You've got to go out there. So a couple things that really helped. Number one, as often as possible, I would take one of the kids with me. So each of the kids has memories of a one-on-one time with Dad on the road. And uh, those were some of the, the kids say, now, Dad, those were the great times of my life, just being out there, seeing new cities, new places, meeting new people, and being with you uh, basically 24 hours a day for the length of the trip. And then the other thing that was helpful goes all the way back to Dallas Seminary and a man named Howard Hendricks. And he said, uh, when you guys get out there in the ministry, you're going to be inundated. And he said, what I do is I make appointments with my children so that when Charlie Brown says, uh, you know, Professor, can we meet on 3 o'clock Wednesday? I say, you know, I've got an appointment on 3 Wednesday, but I could do it 3 o'clock Thursday. And he said, I never told him who it was with. It wasn't their business. But I had an appointment with a kid. So mentally, I would schedule appointments, and uh, you know, maybe it was fishing after school, or maybe it was Friday night's football game, or what, whatever. I segmented it so that nothing except an incredible screaming emergency would interrupt that. Yeah. And I think the kids learned through that that uh, they were not tag-alongs. But next to Christ and the kingdom, they were the most important thing in our lives. In Maryland, you you were then home for a lot of that uh, because of the kids. You weren't able to travel with them a a whole lot. What did you do while Dad was gone to help maintain that same commitment and same freshness as a family at home? Well, we were very close. I just loved spending time with the children. I, I always enjoyed reading to them. We did a lot of reading in our family. And uh, even as they grew older and could read for themselves, I remember Father Peter, John, and I spent a lot of time with uh, the tales of Narnia. So 
you know, we had a real together time. It was like we'd switch gears. When Dad was home, we were in one mode, and when he was gone, then it was just kind of a different mode. We adjusted, but it, it was good, and uh, we were very close. Let's look back over the years as the chairman of the Missions and Evangelism Department, Father Peter, and maybe pick out uh, one or two of your fondest memories of those years. I know it would be hard. Well, an early one was uh, with a dear friend, Father Bill Olnhausen, who was an Episcopal priest outside of Milwaukee. He was even at one point considered for the bishop of that diocese. And um, he had traveled to Greece, had had some experiences in the churches there, and even with some of the iconography that were very seminal for him. He was also a, a total sold-out traditionalist and uh, was not a friend of uh, many of the innovations that began to creep into that denomination. There was a weeping icon at a church called St. Philip's in Chicago back, oh, what year would that have been? Probably in the early 80s. And that's where I first met him. He had come down to see this phenomenon. So we stayed in touch, and then he asked if I'd be willing to come to Milwaukee and make a presentation of the Orthodox faith to his people. I said, absolutely. So he ran it by the bishop, and the bishop approved it with the condition that he, the bishop, also be given a chance to explain his position to the uh, people, not at the same night. Um, and so that was agreed to. And the night I got in there, it was in early March, uh, the state high school basketball tournament was on, and it was the final game. And the snow was so heavy, they canceled the game. Now, if you cancel a high school basketball state tournament game in Wisconsin, you know that it's snowing. And only the people with four-wheel drive made it to the meeting. So there were probably just eight or ten people. And uh, I went through the kind of the overview of the history of the church and why it was that we 2000 Campus Crusade type evangelicals had become Orthodox. It was very well received, but it didn't blanket the congregation like we hoped it would. And so I would visit from time to time. Some of the neighboring clergy would make presentations to his people. And finally he came to the place where he said, uh, I know I want to be Orthodox, I know a number of our people will come with me, but I'm, I need to know when is it God's timing, because as their pastor and shepherd, I'm responsible for all the people, not just the ones that are going to end up being Orthodox with me. And I said, well, maybe I'd ask the Lord to show you a sign. I, you know, I certainly can't tell you when that time is. So I was down in Oklahoma City with our dear friend, Father Constantine Nasser. And it was coming up on 11 at night and time to go to bed, and the phone rang. And it was Father Bill Olnhausen. I said, what's going on? He said, I got my sign. And I said, what is it? He said, the bishop is taking me to church court. And I said, what's the charge? He said, being orthodox. <laughs> and so uh, we had a good laugh over it. I'm sure it wasn't super funny to him at the time because anytime you know you're in your 50s and there's this mega change coming about in your life it isn't it isn't easy but um, that summer Bishop Antoon flew to Milwaukee I met him there and we chrismated only about 15 people uh, two families were gone because of a long-standing family reunion that was being held and they simply felt they couldn't turn their back on their own family 
but they were chrismated a couple weeks later because they'd been catechized along with the rest. And that was just uh, not only a, an encouragement at that time, but over the years to watch this community grow. Father Bill is an incredibly gifted priest, a gifted teacher and preacher. He's low profile, low pressure, and folks just feel comfortable following his, his leadership. Mm -hmm. So that would certainly be one instance that was a, a real highlight for me. You got any more? Yeah, it's hard to pick them out. Father Gregory Matthews Green, also an Episcopal priest, also a traditionalist, though it wasn't always so. He was a kind of a flower child, <laughs> the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, if I remember right, he and his wife uh, had a kind of an outdoor garden wedding and honeymooned in Europe. And while they were there, she had an experience in front of a statue, I believe, of Christ, where she was just converted personally to faith in him. And uh, they came back, and I think at that point went to seminary. And uh, he had been a, a real voice for tradition and moderation in the Episcopal Church and uh, was totally marginalized. And uh, so he went from this really high-profile, successful young Episcopal priest to... Uh, basically being a man without a country spiritually. And the first time I went to see them, there were two or three other young men, a Lutheran and a couple others that were more evangelical. And we met together at their house. And uh, ultimately some of these other men became Orthodox as well. Uh, but then after he was trained and catechized along with his people, the first visit I had there, they were renting a schoolroom, an old schoolroom, at an old Roman Catholic school, and that was their little sanctuary. And I remember walking in, and here was this cracked linoleum floor and a very humble altar, but well, nicely appointed with uh, candlesticks and the gospel book, and, but it was Spartan. I believe I served with him that day, though he was the lead celebrant. And of course he had his, all his new vestments, and he served as though he was in a cathedral. Mm. And you know, it's a real gift to be aware of what's there, and yet have the vision to look beyond that to what it could be. And he served not in a little schoolroom, but in a cathedral that just looked like a little schoolroom. Mm. And I can remember being so impressed with his faith and his demeanor. And of course, his dear wife, Frederica, has been a primo author and commentator uh, for the Orthodox faith throughout North America and even overseas. So those are two memories that are just uh, very, very precious to me. Well, so many of us are just deeply indebted to the path that you took which allowed us to open those doors too and start to explore the fullness of the church. But I know down through those years, as part of your journey and as part of your work in the department, uh, you also struggled physically for uh, some time and, and still have issues to deal with uh, related to cancer. Uh, tell us about that and how you're doing today. Well, <laughs> actually it's been a whole plethora of things. Uh, Father Peter John and I have the privilege of sharing bad backs. And of course, his gene pool was from me. 
I've had two major back surgeries. I've uh, been very limited physically in what I can do at this stage in life. I cannot serve the Divine Liturgy anymore, for example, which is a heartache. I sit during most of it. And then there have been other maladies, but the, the shocker was the cancer. And uh, that came probably 15 years ago. I had a growth on my upper arm that looked very dubious. And so I went to our family doctor, and he immediately excised it, sent it to the lab, and uh, it was misdiagnosed as being benign. So it was a year later, my arm had swelled up, and it was Christmas time, and our son-in-law is, uh, is a physician. And I showed it to him. He said, man, I would get on the phone in the morning and get this thing looked at. And the long and short of it was because of that misdiagnosis, it had metastasized into my lymph nodes. And they gave me a 50-50 chance to live. And fortunately, the surgeon that I was referred to said to me, you know, this is an extremely aggressive disease, so be prepared because we're going to do extremely aggressive treatment. And the needle biopsy showed, again, that those lymph nodes were benign, and he just simply said, I ain't buying it. So I'm going to go in and remove some and see, and some were cancerous. So he went back in, removed the entire 22 lymph nodes with the prayer that it hadn't spread any further. And it's rare for it not to have spread further. So uh, I would go in every three months to the dermatologist and get a thorough exam. And uh, several years later, they found a growth on my back they didn't like. That turned out to be melanoma, but they got it early enough so that it did not go into any of the lymph nodes. And then just a couple of years ago, they found a, a growth on my left leg, which turned out to be melanoma. And uh, the unfortunate thing from that round of surgery is that those wounds got infected. Yeah. And um, it, took, it was six months on the bench, as far as my work was concerned, to get rid of the infection. You know, what I've learned through it, when I was first diagnosed, I've always been a believer in, in trying to figure out what I want out of this. And then, even more importantly, what's God's will in this. But I wanted to know how to pray. And so as I thought about it, I said, as far as I can discern, I want two things. Number one, I want to grow old with this lady here. Remember one night in college after we were Christians and after we knew we would be married, uh, just unannounced, we went by my paternal grandparents' old Victorian home in Chicago Avenue in Minneapolis, and it was probably eight at night, summertime, so it was still very light. And uh, we had to park three or four houses down the street. They didn't see us coming. And as we approached their home, they were sitting together on their front porch swing holding hands. Hmm. And that was a snapshot that's never left the lens of my mind. And I thought, that's what I want at 72. So I said to the Lord, number one, I want to grow old with Marilyn. Number two, I want to build more churches. I've learned how to do it. I've learned how to relate to non-Orthodox pastors that want to come and bring their people. Learned a balance and how much to encourage them and how much to back off and let the Holy Spirit work with them. So I figured I'd like to have a few more years to do this. So that was my prayer. But also, I was very keenly aware that 
as a member of the body of Jesus Christ, it's not just me praying for myself. And uh, after the word got out that I had melanoma, we began to get, people would mail us, Orthodox people, icons of St. Nectarios. One priest had gone over to Greece with his wife on a vacation and had uh, bought a small bottle of holy water that was from the fountain in the monastery that he founded. And he's a fairly recent saint, 1900s, a monk, and is known as the one that you ask to intercede for you if you have cancer. And there have been some remarkable healings through his ministry. And so I began to strike up a friendship with him and ask for his prayers. And then I'd ask for the prayers of other saints, both living and departed. And uh, I found myself not praying a lot for myself, mm-hmm. but rather asking for the prayers of others. And I think as I look back that my motivation there was I did not want to be preoccupied with this. I did not want the campaign to get rid of cancer to be the most important thing in my life. I wanted it to continue to be my love for Christ. And uh, so other people prayed. I also felt, you know, if, if all I am is focused in on me, then it won't be long before I elect myself president of the Poor Me Club <laughs> and begin to feel sorry for myself. And I, I despised that. So it was casting all your care upon him because he cares for you and casting yourself on the prayers and the intercessions of your friends both in high places and here to take up the slack and remember you. So today it's a matter of going back in for every checks three every three months mm-hmm. and deal with any issues that come up exactly. as they exist. So and what they've said is if they catch it early I'll be fine. Yeah. So this really did, was not part of your decision to retire, uh, the melanoma that part. That in and of itself had nothing no. to do with it. Okay. It was simply that with my back as it is, I've got arthritis of the spine, I'm stiff, I back my car out of the driveway. I have to say to Marilyn, look both ways because I can't turn mm-hmm. around and look. Yeah. And um, the whole thing of you know driving an hour up to the airport, parking the car, getting the suitcases out of the trunk, walking in the terminal, standing in those forever lines to get tickets and then to be uh, examined before you through the security. Well, by the time I'd hit the gate, I was I was shot. Yeah. And I just thought it's time for somebody younger to give in, let's come in and do this. As you step aside, step down from your role as uh, chairman of the Department of Missions and Evangelism, give us a challenge. What's on your heart? What do you have to say to the next generation of people who are interested in seeing the church grow? Just share a little bit of your heart. Well, ever since seminary, I've had the view of leadership that uh, leadership is working yourself out of a job. And if you want a Bible verse, it's uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that St. Paul says to Timothy, the things that you have learned from me and other witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who in turn will teach others also. And one of the evangelical leaders of the past generation called that reproducing reproducers. Evangelism isn't done when you've brought somebody to faith in Christ. Rather, it's more done when A, that person is part of the church, and B, when that person himself 
or herself is bringing others to Christ who bring others to Christ. And um, as I look back over the nearly 25 years that we've been Orthodox, the things that throw me most are parishes that were spiritually sleepy, who now there's maybe a Bible study going for the men, Bible study going for the women. Uh, there's prison ministry coming out of there, or skid row ministry, or soup kitchens, or uh, sponsoring the Orthodox Christian Fellowship on the nearby campus. In other words, it's taking the gospel outside the walls of the church, and that's what an evangelist does. So I've, I've made an effort to try to find other clergy and lay people that had this burden or were willing to learn it. And, uh, you know, I can name names and name places, and that's a marvelous mm. thing to look back over where this whole thing has happened. I remember the first evangelism conference we ever had, Father John Braun said, you better have somebody do a session on, is evangelism even orthodox? Because we would get that a lot from orthodox lay people. Well, that's what Protestants do. We're not called to do that. And the fact is, they were wrong. So what I did was I found a, an ethnic priest who was a very gifted evangelist and asked him to come and make that presentation at the evangelism conference. He did a great job. And, uh, you know, say a Greek or a Russian Orthodox person can argue with me. Well, you know, he's just a Protestant convert. Uh, of course that's what he's going to say. But one of their own gets up and says it, and it's a whole, whole new ball game. So, you know, at the end of the 25 years, I look back, I see churches that have really come alive, pastors that have come alive, lay people that have taken ownership in the work of the church and the work of the Great Commission, and it's satisfying. And uh, so for the future, I just uh, look to the day when said, and Philip uh, appoints someone that is able to move in and take this job over. He won't be like me because... There's only one of any of us that'll be somebody that loves God and loves the church and is willing to stand up on his hind legs and make some noise out there in the world to call people to Christ. And uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm optimistic. I know my days of doing this are gone. I'll do it locally, but the days of getting on the plane and flying for four hours or flying overseas or uh, just, it's just, gone. So I, I hope we've got some young buck out there somewhere that's ready to roll up his sleeves and keep going. And as you step down, how do you want your legacy to be remembered? What do you hope people will remember? To be honest, just a sinner saved by grace. Yeah. And one of the stern warnings of scripture is do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. The scariest verse in the Bible was written by St. Paul, but I fear lest after having preach the gospel to others, I myself might be disqualified. That's the same guy that wrote that I am convinced that neither life nor death nor principalities or powers nor anything can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So it, it was an assessment passage that, you know, we, we're never overcomers retired. We are overcomers until the day we meet God. And as you get old, that means something different. Probably means more time in prayer, less time out, you know, causing trouble for the devil somewhere in the campus or the city. But we're never quitters. We don't finish the race until we finish the race. And uh, so 
Yeah, I'm going to look to Father Peter John if, if there's something in the parish I can do. You know, he's, he's asked me on a couple occasions to have lunch with someone that's older, that's more my age than his, that he feels I can relate to. I'd, I'd like to keep doing that. Right now we're team teaching catechism, and um, I, I really enjoy that. I'm still active in the state uh, with uh, my college fraternity, SAE, where I've been chaplain for 15 years. Unless it's a screaming emergency, I'm not going to get on the plane and fly to Seattle to help out with a suicide situation that's occurred. Somebody else is going to have to do that. But here in Indiana, um, I've had a marvelous time with some of the guys in our local chapter here. Uh, there's a bunch of Christian guys in our chapter down at the University of Evansville. I've not been down there yet, and I want to be. I've met some of them. So um, what I envision is locally maybe getting in the car and driving down there. It's two and a half easy hours. Yeah. And uh, driving up to Indianapolis, which I did last spring, and speaking to our chapter there. So these are things I've loved. I want to continue, but it, it'll just be at a, at a pace that my body can handle. What about writing? Do you see any uh, well, books on the horizon? I've got a friend that's twisted my arm. Seriously, uh, for years, uh, Father Thomas Zell and Carla, who ran Conciliar Press before you, had wanted me to do another book. We did the, the Becoming Orthodox book uh, over 20 years ago. And uh, frankly, the Orthodox Study Bible fried me. Uh, we lost two of our three full-time people to health issues in the closing months or year of that project. And uh, so I had to step in and, and take the place of Father Jack Sparks, who had the final pass-through editing, which I know how to do and I'm good at, but that was his job to do, and my job was missions and evangelism. So for a year, I did two jobs, and it about killed me. So I'd say to Father Thomas, you know, I'm fried. Just give me some time. I'm not ready yet. And then just in the last year or so, the idea of writing a, probably a last book, and I'd like to call it uh, The Memories of His Mercy, and start from my youngest memories of how the Lord has been merciful to me and now to us. Yeah through those years of searching for the church, through those years of learning how to be orthodox and um, doing the missions and evangelism work, and now through the years of retirement to um, continue experiences mercy and to share with other people the faithfulness of God in a way that I hope will motivate them to trust in him more than they do now. Well, I know work has already begun on that begun. book, and uh, we're looking forward sometime soon to introducing that to, uh, to our listeners. Thank you. Well, Father Peter Gilquist, retiring from the department chair of the Antiochian Archdiocese Department of Missions and Evangelism, thank you for inviting us into your home. Thank you, Cordia Maryland, Father Peter John, for sharing your memories with us as well. And uh, we just wish you Godspeed and health and um, many, many more years. Uh, we're, we're glad you're doing it at this relatively young age so you can enjoy many more years with family and uh, with uh, a little more relaxation. Well, thank you for being here, both you and Tanya. And it's always a joy to have you here. And I hope we do many more of these. From Bloomington, Indiana, this is John Maddox for Ancient Faith Radio. Thank you.